Hi, my name is Bob Sander, and I'm a professional storyteller. For over 30 years, my repertoire has included a group of personal narrative stories. Some of these are childhood memories, stories lived when, well, basically when I was a knucklehead in training, so to speak. Other stories come from my college student era, and still others date from my time as a beginner parent. And you know, by then I was kind of a professional knucklehead. While I do tell personal tales that are, well, either too risque or too this or too that to include here, you know, if you come to dinner some night, we'll eat and drink and I'll, I'll spill the beans on all those stories. But this collection, this bunch makes the cut. So I hope you enjoy them. And as for truthfulness, well, just know that these stories are absolutely 100% as true as I can make them. Enjoy. I always liked going to school, a kindergarten that is. If for any reason I couldn't attend, I was just inconsolable. However, as soon as I started public school, I began to engage in a challenging new area of learning known as plain sick. There was an abundance of fellow classmates, role models, let's call them, from whom to learn the finer points of that sport. I picked up these gems of wisdom quickly. I seemed to be a natural. One of the more useful pieces of secret knowledge was learning how to convince Mr. Thermometer to tell your mother you had a fever. I gleaned this from fellow classmate Larry, who would later go on to an interesting career exploring the boundaries of the criminal justice system. Get her to leave the room after she puts the thermometer in your mouth. When she's gone, take it out of your mouth and stick the end of it up against a light bulb. Not for too long, though. Huh, this works? Oh, every time. Well, for him, maybe. I had mixed experience with that technique. Sometimes it worked like a charm, and other times my mother knew something was up. Either you have a fever of 125 degrees, which means you're dead, technically speaking, or this thermometer is shot. Either way, you look all right to me. Get dressed. You're going. Maybe I should add a little, a little side note here. I know that kids today use an electronic thermometer. So to bring us up to speed on a thermometer of old, here's how it worked. Your mother brings you a fragile, hollow glass tube. She tells you the tube is filled with a deadly poison called mercury. Then she tells you to stick that tube in your mouth under your tongue and leave it there for two or three minutes. And for God's sake, don't ever bite down on it because the broken glass will cut your mouth to shreds and the poison will kill you instantly. Yep, for that era, the mercury thermometer was the absolute pinnacle of science. Now, back to our story. Another time, when the lamp next to my bed was on the fritz, my mom came back into the room sooner than I expected. She found me standing on the backboard of the bed, trying to hold the thermometer against the light bulb in the ceiling fixture. 
Uh, more light, Mom. I need more light to read the temperature. The light by my bed is burnt out. You should change that, you know. That didn't go well either. But playing sick is not what I want to tell you about. No, I want to tell you about a rare occasion, the only one I can remember, when I was really sick but desperately wanted to go to school. I'll leave a little blank space here in case that assertion causes some rumbling in the Earth's tectonic plates and we need to run for cover. Nothing? Okay. All right, now, gentle listener, I guess we're both still here. As I was saying, I really was sick, but I desperately wanted to go to school anyway. It was nearing the end of my first grade year. For being such well-behaved little engines of chaos, we were being rewarded with an ice cream party. I loved ice cream. I loved ice cream even more than I hated the enforced routine of school, and that is saying a lot. So when I woke that morning with what later turned out to be a bona fide fever of 101 degrees, flushed cheeks, and that certain look in the eyes that mothers everywhere can detect through a stud and plaster wall, I knew we were in for a tussle. You're sick, said my mother the moment she walked in the room. I am not, croaked someone in an unnatural sounding voice that came out of my mouth. Criminy, I thought. What a giveaway. My own voice is betraying me. I sound like a frog wrapped in cardboard. I'm going to take your temperature right now. Lay still while I go get the thermometer. I was still all right. I was furiously trying to figure out how to get Mr. Thermometer to make my mother believe I did not have a fever. Well, the rub, of course, was that none of my mentors had covered this subject how to make your temperature appear normal? I was on my own with this. My mother came back and put the little mercury stick in my mouth. Bite that thing and you'll die, she said. Then she left the room. I could hear her talking on the phone out in the living room. Marguerite, it's Francis. Is Keith sick today? Fever maybe? She always allotted plenty of time for the temperature to register. I figured she'd be on the phone for at least three, maybe four minutes. My dad was still asleep, worked nights, slept until afternoon. It was time for action. Here's what I calculated. 30 seconds to get to the kitchen, unseen. Three seconds to quietly open the freezer door. 25 seconds to stick the thermometer on a piece of ice. 30 seconds to get back into bed. Now, to this day, especially since I am now the father of children of my own, I continue to be amazed by the resourcefulness, creativity, imagination, and utter stupidity of assorted childhood notions. For instance, I once convinced myself, after reading a Batman comic book, that I too could scale nearly any impediment wall or building with a grappling hook and rope, such as Batman owned. I tried to do this repeatedly with scant success. The problem was likely my use of inferior grade equipment, namely a huge paper clip and some fishing line. Hundreds of tries later, and with an ever-increasing braid of fishing line purloined from my dad's tackle box, I did finally succeed in yanking a gutter of the house loose. Such is childhood imagination. 
Where others saw a paperclip, I saw glory. Back to the day in question. After I carried out my freezer plan, I quickly resumed my position in bed and heard my mother hang up the phone and walk down the hall toward my room. I congratulated myself for a brilliant plan well executed. It occurred to me that Batman himself couldn't have done better. But even Batman started out with a mother. Oh my God, can you imagine what she went through when he was little? Mom took Mr. Mercury out of my mouth. He'd only been in there for a few seconds. Normal, I thought. Ha, huh, I'll show her normal. She looked at it. Then she pulled her glasses up onto her forehead and squinted at the thermometer yet again. She put her glasses back on, set the thermometer down on the bedside table, and just looked at me. Although it was a look I'd seen many times before, I never did find the proper word to describe it until many years later I had acquired an adult vocabulary. On the day I ran across the word exasperated, I knew I'd struck gold. No fever, right, Mom? Oh, no, no, no fever. Normal, huh? Yep, perfectly normal, especially for people who have been buried in ice for a day or two. I decided not to offer any more medical opinions right at that moment. She put our, her hand on my forehead. I'm calling Doc Ray. But, but. She put her finger to her lips and gave me the dangerous look. I reasoned this might be a good moment to finish reading my current Batman comic, so I buried my head in the pages. My mom got on the phone to arrange the doctor appointment. When I turned eight or so, we started going to a different doctor. But at this earlier, more impressionable age, we didn't go to the doctor at all. He came to us. Yep, our original doctor, Doc Ray. He still made house calls. My memory paints him as very old, hardly any taller than I was, kid height, ocean blue eyes with a severe expression, and a voice that sounded like someone in hard sole shoes walking on broken glass. If you asked me at the time, I would have told you he was 95 years old. And now, looking back, uh, I guess he was 50. Since I'm 60 as I pen these words, I suppose that makes me 105 right now in kid perception years. My mother swore by Doc Ray once she had no more than walked into his office to complain about some symptoms she had been experiencing. Before she could get a single word out of her mouth, he said, apropos of nothing, Francis, you're developing a goiter. She followed his iodized salt prescription, and the symptoms disappeared. My dealings with him were more uh, nuanced. He made me smile on rare occasions. Mostly, he was intent on getting down to the real business of being a doctor. That would be administering painful pokes or jabs or thrusting foul-tasting liquid down my gullet. By the time he showed up later that morning, my fever was full-blown. I felt miserable from it, but by now I had staked out my position. I am not sick. I stuck to this in spite of the fact that the likelihood of me going to school and getting in on the party was melting faster than the ice cream the kids were slurping down. Ay, ay. Knowing this made me even more miserable. The three of them, 
my dad was up now too, came into my bedroom. My mother started to say something, but Doc Ray just waved her to silence. Oh, he's sick. I can see it from here. It's going around. He's the third one I've seen this morning. I'm not sick, I croaked. Can you do something for him, my mom asked. I hate to see him miserable like this. Plus, that one neighbor boy, he got a fever some years back. They couldn't get it down, and it, it went too high, and he... Of course, Doc Gray knew what had happened to that child. There was some brain damage involved. Maybe he thought I didn't need to hear about that. Well, Francis, I'll write you a prescription. You take it up to John at Iverson's. That's the pharmacy. I'm not sick, I croaked again, thinking they must have missed my earlier comment. But that's going to take hours to get into his system. Can't we do something for him right now? I'm not sick, I croaked. Likely, there must be some atmospheric disturbance that prevented my words from reaching them. Though they stood less than three feet away from my bed, surely they must be seeing my lips moving. Well, now here Doc Ray paused, diligently searching the cluttered closet of his 95-year-old brain as if looking for a pair of shoes or, or an umbrella, and then he found the item he was looking for. Well, how about I give him a shot of antibiotics? A beatific smile spread across my mother's face. It made her look like she'd just gotten her acceptance notice to heaven, or, better still, like she'd just noticed that the then-popular singer Andy Williams was walking into our living room. Housewives loved Andy Williams. She was just ecstatic. A shot of antibiotics. What could be more immediate, modern, motherly, and appropriate? I had a different view of the situation. In mere seconds, I was up, out of the covers, and prancing on top of the headboard behind the bed. I'm not sick, I croak yelled. I told you that three times already. I don't need a shot. I was like a greased pig. None of them could successfully grab and subdue me. Hold on now, Doc Ray finally said. All this rushing around and getting excited is not good for someone in your condition. My condition? My mother and father stopped trolling for me instantly. Even I was momentarily stunned into immobility. What is it about hearing a doctor using that professional tone say the words, your condition? Hey, whatever it is, it just runs your battery right down. Francis, Ted, why don't the two of you leave the room for a bit? The boy and I here, we want to have a little talk. Really? I was pretty sure my side of the conversation was going to be limited to three phrases. Go away, I'm not sick, and I want to go to school. But listen, even in my condition, whatever that was, I still maintained enough human decency to worry that that last assertion that I wanted to go to school might trigger a laughing fit in what was clearly an ancient and frail old man. If he laughed himself to death, I would never forgive myself. And maybe your jury wouldn't either. I decided to omit that from my defense. When Mom and Dad were gone, he turned back to me. Go away! I'm not sick! Well, of course you're not. Anyone can see that. I just said all that. That was to calm your mom down. She was getting all worked up, right? Yeah. 
if he was trying to throw me off my guard, it was working. What was his angle here? I don't like shots my own self. You don't? He gave me the universal cocked eyebrow expression that means the same thing in every language. Are you kidding? Heck no. In the arm or in the rear. Shots, oh, they all hurt like anything. Huh, exactly. This sounded entirely sensible, something any kid could stand behind. Evidently, I had misjudged the good doctor. And if it were just up to me, uh, I would never give another shot, not ever. Oh, this seemed good. It must be a catch. But it's not just up to me now, is it? Uh-oh, here comes the catch. No, the problem is my associate. My associate gets angry when I don't give shots. Very angry indeed. He put particular stress on the word associate. I looked around the room. Was I missing something? There's nobody behind him. There's nobody in the closet, to my knowledge. Was somebody else even in the house? He noticed my searching eyes, and he responded by saying, Would you like to meet my associate? No. Well, because he's right. And with this, he reached forward and slipped his right hand into the worn, wrinkled, black leather doctor's bag, which sat all quiet and lonely at the foot of my bed. He's right here. His gnarly liver spot fingers disappeared into the black crevasse up to his elbow and then began to inch back upward. I froze in unblinking anticipation of sudden good or evil, which I knew not. As his fingers reappeared from the void, I saw what they contained. Hair. Long, ever so long, shiny, cold, black human hair. Though it is difficult, but still possible, to feel your own eyes bug out, on this occasion I knew mine must be fully bugged. The terror that gripped me was profound. It took forever for his hand to fully exit the bag, but even after it did, that hair just kept coming. As he continued that slow, dramatic lift above the bag, the hair followed upward in a pendulum straight downward line. Something, whatever it was, was on the other end, weighing it down, the little narrator in my brain said, Buddy, whatever's on the other end, it can't be good. Bingo. What emerged in excruciatingly slow motion was a shrunken human head. Its diseased reddish-brown skin was formed into deep fissures and folds. It was even worse than any prune ever placed upon my plate at dinner. Something resembling vestigial eyes gleamed at me from the bottom of the two deep, scabrous eye sockets. The cheeks were so sunken and drawn inward as to nearly touch each other, which, of course, had the effect of pushing forward, showcasing, if you will, the jaggedy, rotten, protruding teeth. Many were absent the better to expose the gum line. On a more positive note, one entire ear was still present. With unmistakable glee apparent in his voice, 
good old Doc Ray beamed and said, This is my assistant. Oh, and when he gets mad, he flies and bites and bites and flies and flies and bites and bites and flies. Okay, I know what you're thinking. It was a trick, a sham, a rubber toy with a stamp on it somewhere that likely said, at least in those days, made in Japan. I know that. Now. I might have even realized it then, had I not been in such a hyper-knuckle-headed state and in the grips of an actual, real, no-kidding-around fever to boot. But a clear head was not mine to command at the moment. I was in the good doc's power. Likely, he noted by my posture, my eyes, and other assorted physical responses that I would soon be a candidate for either clean, new underwear or a trip to the nuthouse. So he barked forth his command, Don't make him mad! Pull down those pajamas right now! In some far corner of my brain, I knew what was coming. A needle would strike my tender flesh, right in the Berensky, yet caught in the malicious, unblinking gaze of Mr. No Lips dangling over there. A needle seemed like a paltry threat. Back and forth, back and forth. He swung in Doc Ray's hand like a hypnotist's watch on the end of its chain. Go ahead, I said. Just do it. Pink. Just like that old no-lips went back in the bag. What was up? Francis, Ted, you can come on back in now. Which they did. You want us to hold him down so you can give him the shot? Asked my mother, helpfully. No, no, no. We're through here. What about the shot? She asked, a note of incredulity in her voice. Oh, he took it like a man. I did? It was over? Yep. In my state of petrifaction, I hadn't felt a thing, except for grievous inner tear which would possibly last for years to come and manifest later in life as a host of unspecified mental instability. Yeah, that was the most important thing in the mores of the day for men's behavior. I hadn't made a peep. Man up silence versus permanent mental damage, weighed in just right on the balance scales of 1950s mental health. He needs to keep the medicine in his system, so be sure to get the prescription filled right away. Well, we will. Thanks for coming so quickly. I don't know how you got him to take the shot like that. He's usually more uh, vocal. Oh, he's no trouble. The boy and I are like two peas in a pod. Neither of us like shots. And we both agree on one thing. Sometimes you got to give in when there's a greater power involved. My mother gave Doc Ray an adoring gaze that ministers, and probably Andy Williams, must sometimes receive. I slowly realized that she thought he had worn me down by appealing to my sense of the divine. If Mr. Shrunken Pinhead down there in Doc's bag is able to smile, I thought, he must be doing that right now. I don't know what was in that shot, but I fell asleep almost immediately. When I awoke, I might have felt a whole lot better, except my mother was standing there with a cup of water and a bottle of medicine. Time for your first pill, she said. A quick word about pills. I hated them only slightly less than I hated shots. I'd swallowed a piece of cinnamon candy when I was three and it lodged in my throat and nearly choked me to death. I'd been phobic of pills ever since. Of course, I still happily ate cinnamon candy. Go figure. 
No pills, I croaked. I'll choke. I'll die. You won't choke. Doc Ray says you got to take this, so come on. No! I followed this with the innate kid gesture of clamming up, lip sealed, won't do it, game over. I expected to see her exasperation look again. Instead, she produced a big, full-bodied, genuine smile. Something was wrong. Doc Ray's so smart. He said you might react this way. Uh-huh. So? Was she going to counter move or what? So, he gave me a little something to convince you to do the right thing. And with that, she brought her right hand out from behind her back. And you know what was in it already, right? You know all about the long black hair and the recessed eyes and the cheeks, blah, blah, blah. What you can't imagine is what it's like to see a horrible, macabre, melting head and face gripped in the hand of the one person in this world who's never supposed to cause you abject terror. And yet, there she was, joyfully dangling the assistant back and forth, back and forth, just like Doc Ray had done. He bites and flies and flies and bites and bites and flies. She burbled that tune as happily as television host Dinah Shore trying to sell a new Chevrolet. It occurred to me later that she could only have learned that nasty little song from the good doctor himself. They were in cahoots on the whole deal. So much for motherhood. She got me to take the dreaded pill, which, like the shot, I was scarcely aware of doing, and then singing and clucking like a hen that just laid an egg the size of the Speedway Oval. She reached over and tied the end of old Pinhead's ebony mane to my bedpost. That head dangled sickeningly close to my pillow. You're supposed to rest. I'm going down to Marcella's for a cup of coffee. Don't get up till I come back. And then she eyed the little fella. Or else. Then she left the room, whistling Andy Williams' hit song of the day, Moon River. I moved to the far side of the bed and cowered beneath the covers. I leaned into the wall as if it were the protective folds of my mother's arms. Uh, scratch that. That's not a particularly appropriate comparison, at, at least not at this moment. Glance by furtive glance, I made myself nauseous looking at it. I was so overcome by the ghastly thing that my body issued its instinctive survival command, fight or flee. So I went to sleep. That's kind of a flight of sorts, isn't it? When I woke up, not only was it still there, it spoke. It actually spoke. A whole slew of malicious obscenity spewed out of its mouth. At least that's what my fevered brain perceived. And I responded in kind. Pretty soon the curse words were flying back and forth across the covers. In fairness, I only knew five curse words at the time. But I did my best to arrange them into every possible combination. I look back on this supposed dialogue now with... Uh, no small degree of wonder. Could I really have been that little Hoosier boy in 1950s Beach Grove, Indiana, having a pitched battle of words, curse words at that, with a cheap toy imported to this country from Japan, a fake Amazonian shrunken head, an item wholly incapable of speech or anything else? Could I? Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. At one point, I became so incensed by its name-calling that I picked up a pillow and flung it at the head as hard as I could, and then I hid beneath the blankets. I was acutely aware that at any moment, the enraged thing 
might slither under those same covers and consume me, starting with my toes and working its way upward. I remember thinking, I hope I pass out before its head eats my head. Silence prevailed. A moment later, I chanced a look. Nothing. Inch by inch, I crawled back across the bed, moving slower than a tick on a dog's butt. I looked over the edge of the bed. There it was, face down on the floor, realizing he must be momentarily stunned. I took the pillowcase off my pillow and dropped it down and over him. When he didn't fling right back up into the air to attack, I immediately understood what had happened. Evidently, I reasoned, pillowcases affect him like kryptonite affects Superman. This, then, was the moment. Time to get rid of him. But where? Any place I put him, my mother would likely find him sooner or later. And I'd bet a dollar to a donut the first thing she'd say would be, Oh, there's that missing pillowcase. And innocently enough, she'd snatch the protective pillowcase off, and he'd come roaring back for the kill. And that's what I thought of it. There was a place where she wouldn't think to look. A place where I could put him and even take back the pillowcase without danger. Yes, it was that place where things you really did not care to see anymore went away and never came back again. I went to the bathroom. So you remember that little homily that starts the best laid plans of mice and men? It's so often quoted because, buddy, it's so true. Because how many times in your life does everything, and I mean everything, go exactly right? Not many, maybe none. Some unforeseen detail, some matter of timing, an unexpected intrusion, something always goes wrong, but not this time. That day I was like Michael Jordan or Michael Phelps or Tiger Woods or any fill-in-the-blank super athlete who visualizes in advance how the scene will go. I saw myself making the fast downward arc with my arm, saw myself hooking the pillowcase in my closing fingers, saw my pathway down the hall into the bathroom, watched the delicate fling of my right arm unfurl the material and direct the evil head into the waiting water, even as my other arm was simultaneously pulling down the flush handle, saw with relief and triumph the final surprised look of defeat on my adversary's shriveled face as the unstoppable maelstrom of the toilet tornado carried him away. Yes, everything I visualized went just the way I saw it. And when the last few trailing inches of black hair disappeared down that mysterious hole in the bottom of the toilet, I sighed a sigh of relief. And I went back to bed and slept soundly for another couple of hours. Likely I would have slept longer but for the strange sloshing noise that awakened me. It was my father. He was ramming and pulling, ramming and pulling. It was the sound of the toilet plunger going up and down, up and down in the toilet. Francis for. God's sakes, what did you put down there this time? I didn't put anything down. It was probably you. You're the one that's all the time washing huge hunks of dirt or grease off from working in the garden or on the car. I heard them down the hallway. They went on like that for quite a while. 
I was pretty sure dirt or grease was not the problem, though I sure hoped it was. Still, it didn't seem right to disturb them. This was a grown-up problem, and kids should not interfere in such, right? Are you happy? Now I'm going to have to call Dick Byland. The plumber? Yes, the plumber. I can't get this thing going. But he's going to be so expensive. I know that, but what else are we going to do? you got to have a John, or do you want to go to the neighbors from now on? I was still listening. They went on and on about whose fault it was. They were sure one or the other of them had caused the trouble. They seemed equally convinced that the plumber would resolve both issues, namely getting the water flowing again and figuring out who was to blame. I listened to all this through the closed door to my room, so it seemed a little unreal, like a television soap opera was playing out down the hall and I was listening to the TV. I felt removed from it all. Maybe that's what a condemned man feels like, too, just before they bring that last meal. The plumber arrived. His small plumber's snake could not set things right. He said it was going to take, quote, a lot more time than I thought. Ka-ching! Money! I wasn't there to see it, but I knew my dad's face registered the look of a man who knows money is leaking out of his pockets, and he's powerless to stop it. It did take quite a while. Both of my parents were gone about their business around the house, doing other things, when finally the plumber called them into the bathroom. The moment of truth had arrived. Francis! Ted! I got her! Come have a look-see! Ah, he must have enjoyed that moment. Remember, I was not in the bathroom. In fact, I had newly installed myself into that peak of safe hiding places, the spot where no one ever thinks to look. I was under the bed. In such perfect safety, I listened harder than ever. Here's what I gathered from listening. He must have held the object that caused all the excitement and trouble behind his back, out of my parents' sight, because as he delivered the following words, there was no immediate reaction. I have been a plumber for 35 years. I've seen many things clog a toilet, tree roots, socks, tennis balls, and, of course, the usual daily stuff. But I've never seen the likes of this till today. You want to see what it was? Yes, of course, said my mom in an expected voice. Show us. What is it? Now, during the brief silence that followed, I tried to, con to reconstruct where had I gone off the rails. I felt I was about to suffer a grievous wrong. Hadn't I wanted to go to school that day? That's what kids... Good kids want to do, right? Yes, it is. Hadn't I made a valiant effort to get there in spite of an adult conspiracy to keep me home? Yes, I had. When clear-cut terror was visited upon me, didn't I rise to the challenge and defeat the enemy? Yes, I did. Now it seemed to me that my only error was not an error of choice, but of degree. And it happened when I was doing my visualization. I had not carried the vision out far enough. I should not have stopped with the head disappearing down the toilet bowl. I should have visualized it going all the way to the sanitation plant. And for that omission, I was now paying the consequence. The silence ended soon enough. Bobby! Bad enough when one parent uses that tone. Worse when it's both.
But you know, I scarcely heard them, and here's why. I was underneath my bed, busy visualizing the best possible outcome for what was going to happen when they finally located me. And so, for the purposes of a happy ending, let me tell you what it was that I visualized they were about to give me. Ice cream.